Happiness is an inside job. At Happy Healthy You, Connie Bowman helps us find our way with inspiring conversations and healthy ideas for living a whole life in mind, body, and spirit. Happy Healthy You, and now here's Connie. So the other day, I was pulling up to teach a gentle yoga class, and I pulled into the parking lot. And the idea came to me to read a specific poem to my seniors, and so I googled it on my handy dandy iPhone, as we do, and all of a sudden my iPhone went blank. My iPhone was dead, dead to the world. I tried everything. I pushed all the buttons. I plugged it in. I turned it on and off. I did everything I could think of, and nothing was working. Now, if you're a yoga teacher, you know how much we depend on our iPhones for our music, our playlists. I mean, it's so important, and we depend on that. And if you're just a regular person, not necessarily a yoga teacher, <laughs> if you're anybody else, you know how much we depend on our iPhones, our phones, our technology. So I proceeded to get pre- pretty stressed. <laughs> And I walked into the the room to teach my seniors, and I was acutely aware that my mindfulness practice had completely fallen by the wayside. I allowed technology to throw me off my balance, and I was kind of was kind of pissed about that. <laughs> you guys, I'm sure you can relate, and and that's just one example of the way that life these days can throw us off our center. And so we need mindfulness practices more than ever. I need my, I'll, I'll just use the I word. I need mindfulness more than ever nowadays. So today's podcast is going to be really diving deep into the power of mindfulness. And I'm so excited to have Deborah Norris, PhD. She is an internationally recognized mindfulness leader, and she brings the scientific basis and the energetic experience of mindfulness to all of us. She's a neuroscientist by training, and she's taught and conducted research at Georgetown University Medical School, American University, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Veterans Affairs, and the Center for Disease Control. She's founder and director with her beautiful daughters of the Mindfulness Center in D.C., and she's also the founder and director of Psychology of Healing program at American University, and she's been a keynote speaker at the National Institutes of Health and other international conferences. She's such an inspiring speaker. I've heard her. She's amazing, and her teaching is known for being as profound and effective as it is comprehensive and healing. And now she is an author. She has a new book coming out November 1st entitled In the Flow, The Power of Mindfulness. So we're here with Deborah. Hi, Deborah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hi, Connie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to join you again today. I'm so excited about your book because as a yoga teacher, I need it. I need I need to know so much more about meditation and mindfulness. And thank you for writing this. What was your inspiration for getting it out there? Well, it's what I do daily. <laughs> and not only for myself, and I've seen such profound effects in my own life, but now as a teacher um, and practitioner um, for several decades in this area, I've seen how it can transform other people's lives, and so I wanted to share my knowledge. Um, I've also had so many people, part of the inspiration is so many people have asked me to write this, and most most importantly, my own children have asked me for this book, mm. and so no greater source of inspiration than a ch- children who care about what you do and asking you to write it. So. Yes. Those and, are my sources of inspiration. And I think it's so cool that your daughters have joined you in the Mindfulness Center. You want to just talk about that for a minute, how much that's meant to you? Having, oh, my gosh. Having, how exciting is that, that they've embraced <laughs> that? I have three children, and my, my two daughters are significantly older, and they are devoting their lives to this work because they've seen how it has changed our family since um, we incorporated this back in the... Uh, late 1990s when we started 
um, incorporating all these practices into the family. And so when I asked them in 2006, 2007, if they would be interested in joining me in opening the Mindfulness Center, they both eagerly said yes. And we have been working together as a phenomenal team ever since. And many others, hundreds of other people have since joined our team um, from our, our directors um, on staff, our board of directors, our advisors, our other team members and volunteers and interns. It's just taken on such energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the three of us. And we work together completely as partners. And to have that kind of partnership with your own children, mm-hmm. uh, there's no greater blessing in yes. my life. And my son is recently starting to join us as well. But he has a career as a photographer. But you'll see... All the photos are by him. Oh, how beautiful. Yeah. So we'll start with the heart there and then we'll wrap up with the heart. But in between, let's talk about mindfulness. The practice of mindfulness has become popularized and mainstream. And you were doing mindfulness before it was cool. So you guys you guys got had a head start and you knew that there was there was something to this mindfulness. Can you talk about Well, I mentioned my experience with technology and how much we all need this practice in our lives on a daily basis. I I do anyway. Um, Talk about how it's it's come into the mainstream and why do you think it's become so popular? Well, that's a great question um, and an important one, too, because it obviously is speaking to something that we need at this moment in time. But you said that it's um, recently become... Uh, so popular it's always been effective it's always been good to meditate but why this explosion of interest I'm not going to be able to prove why to you but I can suggest some thoughts that I have one is it's an antidote to the way we live today Mm -hmm. Uh, if if you ever go back and watch a movie from even 10, 15 years ago, much less one from my childhood, you stay on the same scene for 20, 30 minutes, sometimes even the whole movie, it stays on the scene. Nowadays, you not only jump from one scene to another, you jump from one plot to another, you bounce all over the place within seconds. No, it's so funny. I've actually counted the seconds because I love to edit movies. Yes. I think it used to be four seconds. I think it's down to more like two. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it used to be half an hour. Uh-huh. You know? Truly, and, truly. And yeah. I go to pick up my cell phone because I think it's something that I need to do. And by the time I wade through all the other things that are popping up in my face, and those are split seconds, um, I've nearly forgotten what it is I picked up the phone to do. So we're seeing a culture that is forcing our brains into a state that's the antithesis of mindfulness. So I think mindfulness is really giving us balance. And whether that's the reason everybody's taking to it or not, I'm not sure. But I am definitely sure that it is an antidote. The the concept of sitting and letting your mind slow down, uh, you'll find many people do find, I think most everybody finds when they first come to the practice and sit down, we have what's called busy mind Mm -hmm. or monkey mind. It's bouncing around all over the place. I have a metaphor for this. I liken it to running on a treadmill. If you've ever run really fast on a treadmill and then suddenly step off, you still have this feeling of momentum, of moving forward. Mm. It's momentum. And when we go through our days and we text message and we, we have phone calls and we, have this, we watch TV or whatever you go through, it's one distraction after another. It speeds up the momentum of the mind. So mindfulness is a chance. When we first sit down... We don't, we don't want to expect the mind to suddenly drop into peaceful space. It's okay that we still sense that momentum, like stepping off the treadmill or like stepping off a boat if you've been on the boat. It's okay that it takes a little time to get your sea legs back off, you know, to get grounded again. It's okay when you come into your practice to let the momentum slow down gradually. But it's important that we give ourselves the space and the time to let the brain slow down. That's what it needs. I love that. I love that you say that it's okay because it's okay. And yeah. mindfulness, this this idea of mindfulness, first of all, it's free. Right. <laughs> yes. It's free. It's not anything we have to to 
do anything. We just have to kind of sit there and it's, it's sort of a no brainer to use a <laughs> silly pun. I took this right from your book, Deborah. You write early on the practice of using a single point of focus to still the mind and then letting go of that focus and allowing the consciousness to expand into the primordial field of awareness is as ancient as recorded history. And I love that. It is. It's like, it's really old. <laughs> we learn that when we become yoga teachers, but you know even more because you've done all the research. So let's talk about what is mindfulness? What are the benefits? And talk about some of that research. I think there's over, what, 10,000 or more uh, research papers now that have been done on meditation and, and mindfulness practices. Yes, let's say that it's sufficient now that mindfulness practices are standard of care in healthcare, specifically for treatment of pain and related disorders. Yeah, it, I mean, so exciting. So exciting that that is standard of care. It has, how long would you say that's been? The last truth. couple of years, okay. because the, that's the CDC and National Institute of Health have both come out with statements and the Department of Veterans Affairs as well, statements um, promoting the use of mindfulness and other mind-body practices for the treatment of chronic pain so you, over, over other treatments such yes. as pharmaceuticals and opiates. So exciting. So you were behind a lot of this research with NIH, and let's talk about the benefits that this research has really uncovered. And I'll talk about it historically. The earliest research that NIH was doing was in the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. They've since changed their name to Integrative Health. Um, but the earliest research was to determine whether or not these mind-body practices actually had any clinical benefits. Because unlike other research programs at NIH, which have been curiosity-driven at the level of the researchers. What did the researchers want to explore? What drugs did they want to promote? What drugs did they want to use to treat specific health conditions? NCAM's research program has been driven by a grassroots interest from coming from the people. People are out there using what they call CAM, complementary and alternative medicine therapies. And we didn't have the research behind this health approach to support it. So that's kind of unique at NIH. So this grassroots driven research effort was at NIH was first to explore, do the things that people were paying billions of dollars to do, such as meditation, yoga, acupuncture, chiropractic, and so forth, actually have any clinical benefits? And of course, the data came back, yes, we were seeing positive effects from these practices. So then the question became, what is the mechanism of action behind these things? How are these practices changing us physically and acting on our body systems to create these types of effects? So we've identified now that mindfulness increases serotonin levels, for example, something that we have heretofore taken drugs to do, serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, antidepressant medications. We have also seen that meditation increases endogenous levels of opiates. So uh, replicating what we've heretofore taken drugs to do. We see that it balances all kinds of other neurotransmitter levels in our bodies, something that we've only done with drugs previously. So we're seeing that meditation is a powerful tool that's acting on the, the same system that the drugs are acting on, suggesting perhaps that the system was there in the first place for a purpose. Mm. And that through our own behavior and our own actions, we can individually and purposefully modulate this system within our bodies. Mm -hmm. I love then, how you explain that in the book so well, Deborah. It really, it really helped me understand that our bodies are chemical and electrical, and the same thing that these drugs act upon, this meditation can act upon to create these chemical reactions in our body. It's so, it's you spelled it out so. Uh, and by the way, thank you for sending me your book in advance. Yes. I, I feel so privileged to have read it already. So thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah. You can get the official version on Amazon when yeah. it comes out in I'm November. Excited. I will, definitely. Um, but yeah, you explained that so easily for us. And uh, I, think, I think it's really exciting to know that we can achieve the same benefits over time with practice uh, that we can with some of these drugs. So very exciting. Thank you. And that is, 
acting on a system that's there in the first place. So that mm-hmm. explains why we're able to have drug effects in the first place is because the drugs are acting on a system that already exists. So I want to talk about how it works. How does this work? And I I took this from your book as well. I hope you don't mind. I give a few quotes. I won't give it all away, but you say just as intentional smiling, and I love that because it makes me smile, can begin the release of serotonin and the accompanying, accompanying sensations of happiness. Intentional breathing similarly shifts us from the realm of the stress response to the realm of the relaxation response. The relaxation response is incompatible with the stress response. So it so they can't survive together. The, it's like light and dark. Light eliminates the dark. You cannot have both responses simultaneously, you say. They are opposites on the same continuum. So as you intentionally focus on your breath, you short-circuit the cascade of hormones that trigger stress, and you shift your body into relaxation mode, releasing waves of hormones associated with pleasurable feelings of relief and ease. So that's it. <laughs> I love you got the, it. Yeah, I, I love I that you broke that down. To that. that made me feel so good. Yeah, <laughs> I love the smile, intentional smiling. I mean, that's it. How does it work? That it's it's so simple, and again, it's free. <laughs> so, so I want to talk about meditation. Uh, you 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 go into uh, detail about the different types of meditation. I've tried probably most of them, and we can each find something that works for us. But I love that you say that if we want to target a specific issue we might be having at the time, such as depression, anxiety, Parkinson's stress, memory, cognitive abilities, creativity, pain management, if we want to uh, specify that particular need, we can sort of target our our meditation practice to that. So can you talk about that a little bit, Um, the different forms of meditation and what how they can target different things. Yes, there are many different types of meditation. And I think I, I mentioned at NIH, the first wave of, of research was on any clinical benefits. The second wave of research was on the mechanism of action. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we're going to start to see now, the, the third wave of research, I hope, is what are specifically the active ingredients of the practice? And by that, I mean what are we doing when we're sitting on the cushion or if we're doing yoga uh, on the yoga mat? What, what elements of the practice are having the most potent effects? And is it different with different needs? Obviously, we prescribe different drugs for different conditions. Are there different practices that we might be doing when we come to the cushion or the mat? And I think that the ultimate answer is it will speak to you when you're there. As soon as you get on your cushion, your innate intelligence, your body's wisdom will speak to you and draw you to where the focus is needed. Mm, The the element of the practice that's effective is to be there compassionately. And whatever that means, it means with an open heart and open mind, uh, rather than turning in fear towards what we experience, we turn with with a sort of third-party objectivity of witnessing what, what is there. And this is, I'll use the example you mentioned of pain, um, also because now, as I said, treating pain with mindfulness is part of the standard of medical care in this country. Um, what, what happens is we have in our brains the capacity to tune things out, ignore them, like you do with white noise. There's a background noise, and you might just notice right now there's a background noise around you. You hadn't been paying attention to that, but now you're conscious, oh, yes, it's there. You've shifted something in your brain to allow that information into your consciousness. This is a really important tool that we have, a gift in our brain's capacity to tune out certain sensations, sound, and importantly, pain. We are very gifted as humans and as animals in tuning out pain. Why would we want to be able to do that? Why would we want to be able to ignore pain? Picture the heat of the battle, a physical situation in which you've been injured, fighting perhaps for your life. Do you want upon being injured to stop and say, hang on a second, I'm hurting here. I got to pay attention to this. That's not going to work. Rather, it'd be more adaptive to ignore the pain at that moment 
And not until you're safe will you then become conscious of the pain. And I, I hear of this happening. I hear of, of somebody being wounded, a, a young man shot, ran all the way home before he realized he'd been hit by a bullet, mm-hmm. stuff like this. How is it that our brains can block out painful situations and not tune back into them until we feel safe? And I want to emphasize that sensation of safety because that's what mindfulness does for us. It allows us to feel safe. And when the brain blocks incoming information from the consciousness, then the conscious part of the brain is not available to help coordinate the healing and resolve things such as pain. And we think of of pain as a nuisance, and that's part of the problem in our culture. Yet we wouldn't live long if we didn't experience it. It's a message from the body. When there's a problem in the body, that information has to get to the brain so that the brain can coordinate the resolution. Uh, the, the body doesn't send us text messages or emails, thank goodness. <laughs> Instead, it sends us a message which has got necessarily to be negative. And so we call that pain. But that doesn't mean we should run from it or ignore it. When we're safe, we should attend to it because that's what we're finding heals the pain is opening the awareness. The brain takes care of it after we do that. All we need to do is open the awareness. So as we sit in our meditation, if there's something wrong, if we're anxious, if we're in pain, if we're depressed, if there's something, you know that's what's going to come into your mind. Mm. So what the meditation practice is, is learning to be with it, learning to not be reactive, not push it away, but to accept it. Let it come in. Let it flood into the consciousness and be present because that's where the brain can then do its job. It's going to say magic, but it's not magic. We understand how it happens now. Open what I refer to in the book as the thalamic gates and let that information come up into the consciousness to be processed to conduct the healing that needs to occur. Mm, I love that. And you break that down so beautifully for us. And I want to get to the thalamic gates because that's a fascinating chapter in the book. But I also want to talk before we get there about your work with the vets and how the post-traumatic stress disorder has really informed us a lot of the work that we've done about just just stress in general in our in our society and how this mindfulness practice can can really help anyone, um, regardless of the extent of the stress they are looking at in their life. It can really help us um, really manage it and, yes. and get back to equilibrium, balance. So, Yes, and, and we shouldn't be alarmed if when we sit, what arises is the problem. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good because here's good where it can be digested and here's where it can be resolved. And I hear a lot of people say, oh, I can't meditate it. I tried. I sat down and it was just busy-mindedness or it was just pain or it was just anxiousness. Yes, um, perhaps if you're in a safe place and with somebody who can guide you to hold that space and allow that to come up, I use an analogy of stretching. When you stretch, what you're going to encounter is the tension. If you stretch and encounter the tension, you'll release the tension. If you don't stretch, it'll stay where it was. Mm. And and anybody who's ever stretched, you know afterwards you feel better because you've let that tension go. And so mindfulness is a way of letting whatever's there for you come up and be digested and released. Does anything come, come to mind with regard to the vets? Because when you talk about safety, that's the first thing I thought about um, when, when these vets come home and there's that post-traumatic stress and these, they try to sit and this, these memories or feelings flood their systems. Um, how does mindfulness work to resolve that over time with the vets? Do you have any examples? Yes, and our our literature and our conversations are full of information on the biochemical changes and the biochemical basis of of disorders, PTSD, um, as well as what's going on in mindfulness and the treatments. But one thing we don't have as much discussion around is the energetic fields or the electromagnetic fields that emanate from the body and what's going on there. And I think as we, as we come more into conversation about that, we're going to have a lot more clarity on what's going on. 
in our scientific and experiential understandings of mindfulness and the disorders like PTSD. And let me uh, let me mention that the HeartMath Institute is doing a lot of this type of research. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to do research on electroencephalography, so I have a background in this field. Basically, all cells emit an electrical field, an electromagnetic field that can be measured. And so when we do EEG, we put electrodes on the brain, we measure the electromagnetic field coming off of the brain. When we do EKG, we measure the electromagnetic field coming off of the heart. EMG, we measure what's coming off of the muscles and so on throughout the body. When, when I used to do surgery, we would find that the cardiovascular system is very quick to be contractile, that is to contract, to withdraw, to pull in. And I would suggest that when people are traumatized, and I describe it in great detail in the book, when people experience trauma, they draw the energy field of their body, in particular their heart, in. And that this is a significant part of the impact of PTSD. Let me explain why people might do that. First off, we do know that when you have two people in proximity with each other, their electromagnetic fields begin to synchronize with each other. That is, they entrain. So whereas they might come in and you see no symmetrical relationship between their energy fields, over time they become harmonized, um, both the EEG of the brain and the EKG of the heart. I love that you you talked about that in your book, and you use the example also of uh, women in the dorm. uh, Remember in college how we'd all have our periods at the same time? (laughs) Yeah, we didn't get together and plan that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So it's it's just a... it's a chemical thing or an electromagnetic thing? What, well, which one? that's an example in the dormitories when, when women begin to have their periods at the same time. That's an example. We know that the pheromones are eliciting that. Okay. But the same sort of thing is going on in the electromagnetic fields. Okay. And even if you have a room full of people, over time, we see this entrainment, this synchronicity. So somehow our bodies are sensing each other's electromagnetic field. Now, we don't have a consciousness in our culture of this, but it is happening nonetheless. And other animals have this phenomenon as well. I would suggest that perhaps other animals are more conscious of it. And people have grown to be conscious. People who practice things like Qigong mm-hmm. and um, Pranayama have grown to be conscious of these effects on their electromagnetic fields. And suppose you were an animal who was sensitive to this. Let's use the cat and the mouse as an example. Suppose you're the mouse and you got this nice big field around you, an energy field around you. You're having a wonderful day and then all of a sudden you sense the cat and you realize that the cat has also sensed you through this energy field. The adaptive thing for the mouse to do is to suddenly draw that energy field in to contract it. Mm-hmm. To, hope, to protect itself from being sensed by the cat. And it works. It, it, it makes you feel like you don't exist, like you're hiding, it's stressful. Um, but this is an, an innate reflex when we're stressed, when we're traumatized, to draw that energy field in. To contract. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's not until the mouse is then safe that it releases it and lets it back out. And I think, obviously, humans do this as well. We, we contract throughout the entire cardiovascular system, not only muscularly, but energetically. We draw that energy field in. It's a natural reflex to trauma, stress, and fear. And I think with PTSD, what's happened is there's been so much trauma, so much stress, so much fear, and lack of a place where one can feel safe to let it back out again. Mm-hmm. And this can happen in childhood even with just a few traumatic incidences, say, example, in the family home. The family home's no longer a safe place to open your heart and to let that energy field expand. And this can result in PTSD, a constant chronic state of contracted energy. Okay. And when we learn, and what's happening with dog therapy right now, where dogs are so effective in healing soldiers and other people with trauma 
what's going on there. We all know dogs have great, big, happy hearts and mm. happy energy fields, mm -hmm. happy heart fields. So being in proximity with that kind of safe adoration invites our hearts to open back up and is very healing. Mm. So I would like to suggest, in addition to considering the biochemical basis for how these phenomena work, that we also consider the energetic basis, a definable, tangible, measurable phenomenon that we can also consider because it really illuminates mm. our understanding of the practice. And it's so fascinating. I, I also highlighted this from your book. As you learn to hold the field of awareness, to open your heart field, conscious of the bioelectromechanics of entrainment, rather than entraining with anyone who you encounter, you hold your own field. You can maintain your own energetic state in the presence of others. You call the shots. You are empowered to choose to stay as you are, mindfully present and compassionate, and let others entrain with you. I love that. That's so empowering. Thank you. <laughs> it's so Thank great. You. Yeah. And it can take practice. It's okay. You know, sure. first you, you go to do it and you're like, how do I do this? It's all right. It takes practice. It's like going to the gym. You walk into the gym and somebody's in there bench pressing 100 pounds or so. That's not where you're going to start. Right. You, you start with the light weights. It's a muscle. And we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. I just wanted to mention a few of the different forms of meditation and, and everyone can go to your book to get all of these. Um, I personally practice, I went to the 10-day Vipassana, Vipassana, Vipassana meditation retreat and studied Vipassana, which is, I loved how you said it, it really worked on the heart because I was dealing with healing from grief and, and just that focus on compassion and it's self-compassion, but it's also for, um, for others really in the world. So that Vipassana meditation was really powerful for me, but you mentioned so many others, mantra and mantra is good for, is it brain cognitive? Well, in any kind of meditation where you're repeating words such as a mantra over and over in your mind, it will activate the parts of the brain that regulate language. Mm -hmm. So you'll see growth in those areas of the brain. Okay. What are some of the others that are popular now? <clears throat> Well, what all forms of meditation share in common is the use of a single point of focus to begin to still the mind. So what varies in the different forms of meditation is what that point of focus is. In transcendental meditation, the point of focus begins with a mantra saying words in one's mind over and over again. You can focus on chanting. There's focus on a tone such as the ringing of a bell or the ringing of a bowl. Uh, there's focus on a visual stimulus such as a candle or even just the space in, in the middle of the space between you and the next object. Um, there can be focus on more interoceptive processes such as the breath or on sense energetic sensations arising from within the body. If you have an upset tummy, letting your mind mingle around what's going on in your tummy. If you have a headache, letting that information come into your awareness. If you're sitting there with monkey mind, let your focus be to objectify the momentum in the mind as opposed to participating in the actual content of the thoughts themselves. Simply notice the momentum. So, any, all kinds of things can be a single point of focus, mm -hmm. um, active, coming from any of our various senses and sensory processes. Mm. I focused on the heart, as with um, compassion-based exercise, Vipassana often does that, not solely, but often, um, is another interoceptive phenomenon to observe. So that's how the practice varies, is what you choose is your initial point of focus. Do you have a favorite form of meditation or do you kind of switch it up based on how you're feeling that day? <laughs> well, I think my favorite is, is um, proprioceptive to sense my body and mm. to let what's speaking to me in my body come to me. I, I recently broke my big toe opening my beehive and gathering honey and oh, dropped dear. beehive on my toe. Ow. So it, it speaks to me a lot. <laughs> um, 
I prefer Hello, to, toe. Yeah, ouchie on the toe. I prefer to uh, to let what's present for me come to my awareness and be so curious and in awe of, oh, it's that today. Oh, it's that right now. Oh, and it's different next time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's how I practice. When I guide others, I do teach um, initially from the breath to be observant of the breath. And then I have to also invite participation um, of the brain because so many new students come in and, and sit down and their experience might be just that of busy-mindedness and then they don't feel like they engaged in the practice. So I, I normalize the concept of having busy mind, that it's, it's something we can observe, it's something we can witness. Sure, sure. I have so much I, I want to talk to you about that I'm so excited about uh, your book for. I, uh, I loved your ideas for creating sanctuary. We don't have to go into detail because people can get the book for that. But I loved your tips that were so simple as just setting out a blanket uh, putting a specific blanket on a couch that you can fold up and put away just to create your own sanctuary. It doesn't have to be like a whole room that is your meditation room necessarily, although that would be awesome. I have that. And I, I love it because when I walk into that room, it's peace and people can sense that. People have actually walked into my meditation room and the, it's fun to to hear their reactions. They'll say, wow, this room's really, it just feels so zen. But that's where I meditate, so... <laughs> Yeah, duh. So um, I love your tips for that. And also uh, your tips for the actual practice. Do we sit? Do we lie down? All of that's in the book, which is great. And I want to get to, I'm going to let you lead us in a a special meditation. So we'll, we'll do that at the end. And, and I want to get to the questions from some of our listeners. But first, I want to talk about that thamalic gating that you talk about. There's a whole chapter about that. And you mentioned it Uh, earlier in the podcast, and how that can help with pain, because I think that's really important. Can you speak on that? Sure, sure. So the thalamus is a part of the brain. It's You may have heard of the hypothalamus. When we think of the stress response, we know it begins in the hypothalamus, it activates the pituitary and then the adrenal glands, and then boom, all of a sudden, you feel the adrenaline running through your body, your heart speeds up, your breathing slows. So we're familiar with the hypothalamus. It actually exists right below the thalamus, a slightly larger organ in the part of the brain. And the thalamus regulates what information is coming in from the brain stem, the hindbrain, through the thalamus and then up into the cerebral cortex where it's processed, where we speak of consciousness occurring. So the, the thalamus has control there of what informa- what sensory information to let through. It regulates what certain auditory information is going to get through, visual information. The only information that can get into the conscious part of the brain without being processed through the thalamus is olfactory information, smells, things that, that aromas. And I think that's an, an adaptive thing. We don't want to be able to, to uh, tune out noxious aromas. We need to respond to those by sure. moving, basically, by getting away from them. Um, But all the other information, especially all the sensory information coming up from the body, gets processed through the thalamus. We're seeing a lot in the news right now about the vagus nerve in the scientific arena. There's a lot of interest in the vagus nerve. You know, it's interesting, but we can't actually measure in great detail what's going on in the vagus nerve, but we can hypothesize what it's doing um, in the living person. We know that the vagus nerve uh, synapses on the heart and on the gut and brings information from these organs up into the brain, the mind, where it gets integrated and processed with other information like what we're seeing, hearing, and so forth. <clears throat> but that information coming from the body, as I said before, can be filtered. So if you're in pain, but you still need to run for your life, we're going to ignore the pain and we're going to run for our lives. That's how that works. And so the thalamic gates will shut to information coming through that sensory process and perhaps even from the vagus nerve. So we're not sensing what's going on in our heart. We're not sensing what's going on in our gut or any specific regional peripheral pains. Instead, we're using other senses. And the thalamus gates all that. It, It decides what to open to and what to shut to. 
And what happens when we meditate, I propose, is that when we feel safe, these gates begin to open. Mm. And then more and more information is able to come into our consciousness. And this is a, must account for why I work with people and they, after a period of meditating, I remember one little boy in particular who was so verbose about it. After just about 15 minutes of meditating, he opened his eyes and he goes, wow, everything's so clear. Everything's so bright. Did somebody turn on the lights in here? (laughs) It's because more sensory information was coming in about the visual senses. The same thing happens with our bodies. More information comes in about the sensual experiences of our bodies. So when I hear people say, I don't want to just feel like I'm surviving. I want to feel like I'm living and thriving. That's what we want. We want those thalamic gates to open so we can have a much more profound sensation of being alive. We want that information that comes from the heart, that comes from the gut. What are the sensations that come from the heart? Feelings of love and passion and being alive. We we do thrive on that. And so it's in meditation that those thalamic gates open and the profoundness of the experience of life grows. Does that make sense? That does make sense. So how does that relate to the experience of pain? Um, and, and what does it do for us if we are, say, say our big toe? <laughs> how, do, how does that work on the pain? Do we not experience the pain or is the pain... Lessened. Oh, yeah, we do. Okay. okay. <laughs> we do. How does that and work? And it will resolve. It okay. will resolve. And if it's such a severe pain, as with somebody who's got PTSD or really serious pain, work with somebody who's trained in guiding you. You know, Make sure you have somebody there to hold your hand, to, to reassure you that this is a safe place. Okay. And if it's a paid therapist, great. That's fine. Um, or, and there's many people who are, are now being trained to do this. Um, if you're able to process it yourself, you know, I, I remember early in my work saying, well, I am just sitting here on a sofa. So this is stuff going through my mind. So it, it is, you can remind yourself that you're safe and the breath is a key tool. Remember what we said about the breath yeah. is the, the breathing is reassuring. It activates the relaxation response, particularly the exhale we know that in the exhale, the parasympathetic nervous system is activated, the relaxation phase of the breath. And I love how you describe it in the book, how you talk about the inhale and the exhale. So I'm going to let you do that at the end of this podcast and let everybody just get a little taste of of the way you describe. It's just, it really was profound for me. So, so um, first, I want to get to some questions from some of our listeners um, and the first one is probably a pretty common one, and you touched on it a little bit. Uh, Roger asks, what is the best way to handle thoughts during our practice? I mean, you know, the typical uh, thing for uh, we yogi teachers is to say, let the thoughts float away like clouds. And I get, I get kind of tired of saying that. Is there any, any other way to, uh, to help students with those thoughts, that monkey mind that you mentioned? Yes, with any thought, there is there are several perspectives on it. There's the content of the thought, so the actual storyline. And then there's the feeling of the thought. We speak of thoughts as occurring in our heads. If you were to check right now and see if you're having any thoughts in your left knee, you're probably not feeling thoughts happening there. You're feeling thoughts happening in your head. So instead of focusing on the content of the thought, Focus on the feeling of the thought. It might feel like heat. It might feel like busyness. I've heard so many metaphors, the monkey mind being one of them, but the hum of a hive of bees or the feeder line on the bottom of CNN. What is your sensation of your thoughts? And as you exhale, notice if and when that momentum begins to shift, like stepping off of the treadmill when you're going a high rate of speed. If you were to engage in that momentum, it wouldn't go away. But if you simply observe it, it it shifts, it dissipates. It's amazing. It's sort of amazing that all we have to do is notice, observe. (laughs) It's pretty cool. Very cool. Okay, so uh, good on the thoughts. Let's go to pain. Okay, Rob asks, 
it is painful for me to sit for long periods at a time. What are your suggestions? Um, yeah, I think that's a common one too. When I was at my Vipassana retreat, we were told to sit uh, and we sat for long, long periods, like two and a half hours at a time. Um, every once in a while we were allowed to go into our room and I just laid down in my bed and meditated. I love in your book, you kind of give us permission to do whatever is, is right, but talk a little bit about, um, how to make yourself comfortable to meditate. In addition to teaching meditation, I also teach yoga, and mm -hmm. I was a clinical exercise physiologist. So I have a slightly different perspective. I take out the shoulds. Good. I Remember what I've been saying? So I don't say you should sit with your knees crossed. You should just sit and notice that you're in pain. I take out the shoulds. And remember what I've been saying about pain is that it informs us. If you were to suddenly smell something that was noxious, that was dangerous, you'd get up and move. If you're sitting in a way that's painful, that feels like it's damaging your knees, I do not encourage you to use the tool of ignoring pain. I encourage you to use the tool of attending to the pain. Why is the body able to send you a message so that you can do something about it? Right. Make an adjustment. Move your leg. You know, I've sat too in meditations where they say, stop, don't fidget, don't wiggle around, get the wiggles out and then sit still. But I'll also tell you, I've again worked with children and I have had kids who have wiggled and jittered and moved throughout the entire meditation. They didn't even close their eyes. As I think I say in my book, I thought they were wearing out the inside of their clothes. Yes. They wiggled so much. <laughs> Yet afterwards, cute. they still have had a profound effect. The wiggling does not affect the practitioner. The wiggling affects the observer. And mm -hmm. so those observers have a little more work to do. I think that was um, your dad that said that, right? Yeah, the about the clothes. Yeah, that right? was cute. I love that, that image. That was really sweet. Okay, so let it be. Just wiggle. let it be. Wiggle. wiggle. Wiggle your little tushy off. Okay. Take out the shoulds. Take out the shoulds. Okay, so here's one of my yoga students. Shout out to Laurel. Uh, she has a couple of times mentioned to me, uh, sometimes in yoga, I'll say, breathe into the hips, breathe into the uh, different areas of the body. And what I'm really saying is bring the awareness into the different uh, areas of the body so that we can feel what's going on, sense what, you know, you write about it so beautifully in the book, so much more articulate, articulately, whatever that word is, than I can. And um, I wonder if you can suggest a way, because she feels like she's doing it wrong. She says, I feel like I'm doing it wrong. Um, is it okay that I don't necessarily feel it when I'm um, doing that body sensation, the body scan? Well, you know, different people are differently gifted. And thank goodness, because that brings us artists and musicians mm -hmm. and dancers and so forth. So, you know, as a yoga practitioner, you don't judge yourself compared to others. Mm -hmm. you, you work within your own experience. And so if sensing the body is not as profound an experience for you, then you can be with that. You can say, well, look at, you know, I discovered about, Half the people can sense their own heartbeat, and the other half can't. So it's not about what you find when you do the practice. It's simply that you look. It's simply that you go there and be with it and let go of a judgment of what's coming up. Mm. Uh, is this making sense? Oh, my gosh. That's such a good answer. I wish I'd given that to her. <laughs> that was good. That was good. I'm going to have to work with you to get a little more uh, verbiage for that. So... Uh, okay, last question from Julia. Is there a best time to meditate? Yes. It's when it, it pops into your mind to do so. <laughs> okay. Again, How did I know you were going to say should, that? So yeah. there's no should. And some people find that it works for them to do it every morning, others every night. Some people like a whole hour or even some people go for a day. Yet I've seen very successful and profound effects for five-minute practice. Okay. So... I invite you to explore. Remember, that's what the practice is about. 
explore the practice that works for you because that's the one that's going to be reinforced. When you experience it working, the serotonin gets released, the nucleus accumbens of the brain, the reward center of the brain becomes activated, it will start to increase in frequency. Mm-hmm. Just by when you experience it working, it will it will reinforce itself. So play with it. Have fun with it. Find what works for you. Anytime. And and I find that if I wake up in the middle of the night, because I'm of that age, that sometimes that happens. Not so much since I've been practicing more regularly, but I can get myself back to sleep with a, a little mindfulness practice meditation. So I, I like that, Connie. And I will speak to the concept of sleep, which is a, a different question. Mm-hmm. But since you mentioned it, the state that we go to sleep in can be with us throughout the night. So some sort of activity in the evening and conscious awareness of what that activity is. If if you watch a horror show and then go to sleep, I guarantee (laughs) if I were to do EEG on your brain, I would see a different brain state than if you were to do some Qigong or some meditation or even just some stretching and breathing exercises. You sleep in an entirely different state based on what you're doing in the minutes leading up to going to bed. So pay attention to what you're doing before you go to sleep. And even just having a 10 or 20-minute time frame, when you do something to put yourself in a certain energetic state, preparing for the next eight hours. It makes so much sense. I mean, we warm up before we exercise. Why don't we do the same before we go to sleep? Exactly. So, okay, just a couple more questions, and this one is uh, this is just sort of a fun question. Uh, I love the example that you gave of the woman whose hubby took her to a shrink because she quote unquote saw the light during her meditation. And I just came out of a, a Kundalini intensive, so I wanted to learn a little bit more about the Kundalini awakening and and that Kundalini energy, which you also talk about in the book. I th- I think that's funny. Are there any contraindications to meditation? Oh, okay. <laughs> contraindications <laughs> to meditation. Is there anybody who really shouldn't meditate? This question actually came up in a, a yoga workshop I, I was doing. It was a yin yoga workshop, and somebody asked that question, and I forget what the answer was, but I felt like it should have been no. Everybody yeah, can I'm meditate. You my answer, which okay. is no, but I there's anybody sh- and everybody should meditate. But I'm going to quickly clarify. Okay, when okay. you go into that space and begin opening the mind, what's going to come into your consciousness is the most pressing, urgent thing needing attention. And if there's been serious trauma and serious pain in your life, and that trauma suddenly reappears there. You need to know how to ground yourself okay. or you need to have people around you who know how to work with you and help you to get grounded. Really good and, point. And so you, uh, the this importance of being guided at that point in time and just having the conscious awareness, okay, this shit's going to come up. Mm-hmm. You know, any unattended to stuff is going to present itself. So I'll just, and so yeah. you're safe here. I'm here with you. We can titrate it. We can stop anytime you want. And when you're ready to proceed, we will proceed at the, at the pace that you want. Okay. So okay. how a person with serious trauma is guided is very important. So if you've experienced serious trauma, get some help. Just ha- have somebody at your side uh, to work with you through this. And, and, and somebody trained in working with trauma because, okay. first off, they can language what's going to be happening and what you're going to go through as the trauma is released, sure. as it comes into our consciousness. And we'll give all that information about the Mindfulness Center because I, I'm sure you have so many resources you can share. And, um, and let me say that, is it worth going through all that? Yes, because what it does for your quality of life to take the time to process the traumas out um, is so worthwhile mm-hmm. and can can profoundly change the rest of your life. So yes, I, it's worth it. I am so in agreement. I mean, it changed me completely. And I just want to say one thing about my experience with the Vipassana retreat. On day two, they warned us, day two, all your shit's going to come up. <laughs> and it, it was so like clockwork. On day two, I was in tears for the whole day. The whole day, I all right. my shit came up, <laughs> and I was like, like oh "How my was God. day three? Oh, day three was 
Amazing. But then they said, okay, they said day two and day six. For some reason, day six, I guess we went deeper into the subconscious and day six was a little rough too. Um, and at day six, I was like, I could go home now, <laughs> but I knew I wanted to finish. So I stayed till the 10th day, but I'm glad you said that. Stick with it because the profound impact it can make on your life and your heart and your sense of joy. And we are awakened. <laughs> when we practice. So, so beautiful. Okay. So last question. Here's a question I would love to engage you in conversation about. What in your experience does it feel like to be in the present moment? That's our, that's our goal to really be able to engage with the present moment. Be here now, as Ram Dass says, how does that feel? What is it? What is that sensation like for you? Well, I will take the word moment and, as I mentioned in my book, change it to the word it's derived from, which is momentum. I think when we look for the moment, it's as elusive as that electron circling the, 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 uh, electron circling the atom. We cannot actually find it. We know that it's been and we know that it's coming again. The same sort of thing happens with the moment, the elusive moment. If you try and capture it, it's gone. (laughs) But what we can experience is the momentum, hence the title of my book, In the Flow. What it feels like to be in that place is to be in the flow. It feels like in the practice, you sense the flow of everything that's moving, the universe moving around you, your breath moving through you, time moving by everything is flowing and you are a part of that flow Mm. to have practiced that and then open your eyes and get up and move out into your day with that sense of flow is a sense of right purpose a sense of trueness a sense of direction a sense of purpose and passion It, it it all comes together this is the power of mindfulness is you then move with that sense of flow. And in that sense of flow, there's ease. We release frustration. We, we feel as if carried rather than aiming for a goal. It's as if we're carried towards it. That's what it feels like. Mm, I love that. And I just might add, uh, I personally feel a greater connection to everyone, but also to the great mystery of, and I call her God, <laughs> the great mystery, that great expansiveness. Um, we are all connected and we are connected to a greater sense of, and you call it purpose in your book, a greater sense of this, just this immensity and love. Yes, so. that's that's what the flow is, exactly. Beautiful. So hold on to that <laughs> because we'll have you uh, take us through a practice and I'll practice with you. But before we do that, let's give all the information about the Mindfulness Center and where people can find more information about working with you, getting in touch with you, and where they can find in the flow the power of mindfulness. So you can find in the flow the power of mindfulness on Amazon beginning November 1st, 2016, and hopefully in bookstores near you as well. You can come into the Mindfulness Center. We are headquartered actually in Bethesda, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. And you can also find us and our programming online. We have online meditation teacher training program and many other programs coming soon. An intro to meditation program to be launched this coming spring 2017. So you can find us. Beautiful. Beautiful. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, I am too. I'm sitting, ready to practice. So make yourself comfortable. And at first, yes, wiggle by all means. Wiggle around until you feel comfortable. And as I invite you to be comfortable, notice what happens with your focus. You've taken your focus from outside listening to the discussion, and you've brought it inside to what's going on in your body. You check your back, your hips, your legs, and so forth. You may notice a little tension in the shoulders or your jaw. Relax that. Softening in the belly. So at first, it's overt physical movement in response to this shift in your focus. 
And then it's subtle. I call this subtle yoga, this beginning of the mindfulness practice. As you make these little adjustments within that, that perhaps others can't observe, but you can feel it. You can feel the heart softening. You can feel the breath gradually becoming slower, flowing with greater ease. You may even imagine a sensation of soothing flow coming down from the top of the head through the face and the neck, the shoulders and the chest, down through the core of the body, the belly, the hips, even the legs, the knees and calves, ankles, the soles of the feet. And if you like, you can imagine that flow extending down deep into the ground, into the earth, and settle into that sensation of gravity, that sensation that when you relax, you're held. Sensation of knowing which way is up and which way is down. And then when you rest, you rest down. Feel the connection between your seat, ground, your back, pressing down. And use the exhale ah, to let go and to sink even deeper. And the deeper you go, the more you relax. And the more you relax, the deeper you go. Let yourself settle into that sensation. This is the mind making subtle adjustments within the body to create a greater sense of peace, a greater sense of ease. And as you do this, whilst you're sending your focus down into the body, the body may also be sending information up into the mind. And just notice what rises into your consciousness. If you do have an aching toe or knee or hip, something that's speaking to you, just notice this ebb and flow of what your mind is receiving and focusing on, just like that. And I invite you to use the breath as a point of focus, which also ebbs and flows, which also comes and goes. The inhale and the exhale. Now, the breath is a nice metaphor because we can choose to control the breath. We can make ourselves inhale. We can make ourselves hold or exhale. We can also let go of intention to breathe and simply witness a body breathing. Same with other elements in our life. We can set intentions and aim for our intentions, or we can let the flow carry us and find where it takes us. As with the breath, we can intend to breathe a certain way. We can hold the breath until some greater force is going to come along and cause us to breathe normally again. Same thing with our intentions in life. We can have an intention in life, but if we're going in the wrong direction, we can only force it for so long until some greater force comes along and causes us to let go of that intention and carries us. So in your practice just now, you can let go of intentions. You can let go of a point of focus and simply notice how you're being carried in the flow of this practice, what's happening to you. Things are happening. Your body's being breathed. Thoughts may be coming and going through the mind. You may or may not sense your heart pulsing. Again, it's not what we find. It's that we look. You may feel sensations arising from the belly or not. Simply notice what is there for you. And rest in that. Rest in that sensation like you rest in the sensation of gravity. Letting the body surrender. Letting it succumb. And exhaling just like that. Ah. Ah. We often look for a sense of being held or a sense of balance in life. It's right there. Speaking to us in the sensations of gravity but for opening your consciousness to it, just like that, just like that. Ah. And whatever you're experiencing just now, 
If you'd like to experience it again, you can because it's coming from within you. It is the experience of being you. You can have this experience anytime you like. It comes with you and it goes with you. So even as you perhaps open your eyes if you've had them closed and come back into greater awareness of the space around you, check in and notice what it feels like inside just now. And breathe just like that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Deborah. Namaste. Namaste, Karen. Thank you. Bye bye. Back to Happy. A Journey of Hope, Healing, and Waking Up is a small but powerful book about healing from one of life's greatest tragedies, the loss of a child. It's about love and sadness and being human. The nine lessons in Back to Happy are intended to be food for a broken but awakening soul. Healing from grief and loss is possible. Finding joy again is possible. Back to Happy, in paperback, Kindle and audiobook at Amazon.com. For more information, visit backtohappybook.com.